LGBTQ plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. On today's podcast, we're breaking down what happened yesterday during oral argument for 303 Creative LLC versus Alanis. Joining me today is Christopher Riano, Chair of the New York State Bar Association LGBTQ Law Section, and our founder, Professor Emeritus Art Leonard. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a lot to unpack, but before we begin, let's just review a quick summary of the case for the folks at home. Hello, everybody. It's really great to have a chance to join, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. And I think similarly to how we've we've talked about this case uh, previously in previous podcasts, you know, I think it's really critical that we have this opportunity to have a discussion about what oral argument looked like yesterday. And, and as we unpack this, I want folks from a constitutional perspective to think very broadly about what this case is really looking at. I think one of the things, and it comes out of Colorado, we're looking at a situation where you have a question of a pre-enforcement opportunity from a human rights commission in Colorado, where an individual is claiming that their First Amendment free speech rights are being chilled when it comes to looking at the creation of potential wedding websites. And for those of us in the LGBTQ plus legal community, we're starting to get more and more uh, kind of used to these questions that are beginning to and continue to surround both First Amendment application, whether it's in the free speech area or otherwise, and then questions around anti-discrimination laws, which obviously have been vigorously fought for over the, the last 50 plus years for the community. And I think in many ways, uh, one of the things that Art and I want to unpack uh, today is really some of the very unique things that I think oral arguments showed yesterday um, about this particular case, and to refocus ourselves on some of the questions that really did come up. I think some things were more surprising than maybe not. I think it's quite interesting to see how these cases are being brought, and I know Art and I will talk a little bit about how these cases are being brought up under free speech in the First Amendment, and how that's a rather unique way to look at some of the questions that, that, that are being looked at when it comes to anti-discrimination laws. And I think oral arguments really do provide an interesting lens and insight into, I tried not to read the tea leaves too much when it comes to what the, what the result may be, but at the same time, I think that oral arguments really did show where people are looking at this broadly. And I think that's actually very important for our community when it comes to thinking about the longstanding tradition that we have when it comes to anti-discrimination and public accommodations and how that applies within the LGBTQ plus community and even more broadly, as was evidenced by oral arguments yesterday. Yeah, I wanted to, to add something to that uh, to remind people that this was a case initiated in federal district court on behalf of a website designer who has never designed websites for weddings. And she's represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a right-wing Christian litigation group whose main goal in life is to expand free exercise of religion as far as possible, undermine the Establishment Clause to the extent possible, and is, as shown in this case, to weaponize the First Amendment freedom of speech to assist people with religious objections to LGBT people and our issues and our status by trying to characterize what is the sale of a good or service as if it is speech. I mean, this, this was a recurring theme. So normally, the way this kind of case would come up would be a same-sex couple would go into a wedding vendor and would be turned down because the wedding vendor says, uh, I do not believe in same-sex marriage because of my religious beliefs, or I just don't believe that it's possible to have a real marriage between two men or two women. And so I'm not going to uh, provide you with the goods or services in question. And then the couple goes and gets the goods or services somewhere else. But because they're so upset at the indignity of being denied 
uh, goods or services in a place of public accommodation, a business that sells goods and services to the public, they file a complaint with the local human rights commission, either the state or it can be city human rights commission in a city. It only works if the state or city agency bans discrimination because of sexual orientation. There are a few jurisdictions since the Bostock decision by the Supreme Court in June of 2020 who have accepted the reasoning of Justice Gorsuch for the court in that case and are now interpreting their state or local sex discrimination laws to cover sexual orientation and gender identity claims, for example, in Michigan. The, the state Supreme Court now has, has said, yeah, we're going to follow that reasoning. And there are other places where courts have accepted that. But basically, we're talking about jurisdictions that specifically address sexual orientation in their public accommodations law. And so what ADF is doing here is instead of uh, waiting for somebody to approach this woman, Lori Smith, and ask her to design a website for their wedding – They've decided to go into court and ask the federal court to decide whether she has a constitutional right to refuse such requests and a constitutional right to advertise on her website that she will refuse such requests because it's a two-pronged case. It's not just uh, whether she violates the law by refusing it, but whether she can advertise that she's going to refuse it because the Colorado statute says you may not – advertise, you may not communicate to the public that you are going to discriminate on a basis forbidden by law. So those two issues are there. And it's the second, it seems to me, the communication that really logically involves the free speech claim. It's like the state is saying, you can't say this. And so the question is whether the state has a compelling interest to tell you you can't say this. But on the first part, on the denial of services, why does she not want to provide a website, devise websites, plan you know, a, a website uh, and assist a couple in setting it up? Why does she not want to do it for same-sex couples? She said because of her religious beliefs. So in that sense, it's a, it's a free exercise case. And it was presented – both of those theories were presented to the federal district court and to the Tenth Circuit. And the federal district court, to my recollection, said, well, no, this isn't really a speech case. This is a conduct case. This is a discrimination case. But the Tenth Circuit said, oh, it is a speech case. This is the thing that surprised me. The Tenth Circuit said it is a speech case, but we think the state has a compelling interest here. We think this survives strict scrutiny. And the funny thing is that really didn't come into the oral argument at all. It was as if the Tenth Circuit opinion – had ruled in favor of the commission, but had ruled in favor of the commission on other grounds or something. Uh, and, and so it was almost like a de novo consideration of all this stuff, which in the Supreme Court you're not supposed to have. But you're also not supposed to have things that aren't real cases or controversies. And I think – I don't know this. My hypothesis is that ADF was looking for somebody to be a plaintiff and they found Lori Smith somehow, or maybe she approached them because she's upset about the possibility. Maybe her story is she was thinking of expanding into doing wedding websites, but she was afraid because she knew about the Masterpiece case. That she knew about other cases uh, where people were sued, and so she wanted to be sure that she would not be at risk. But either way, there's no real case here. There are no. There's not a same-sex couple that was turned down by her. She could have put this on her website and waited to see if they brought an enforcement action against her. And if they did, then uh, you know she could appeal it through the Colorado court system. But she goes running into federal court because ADF just wants to get to the Supreme Court on this issue. They have a long-term strategy. They play the long game. And they're trying to get the Supreme Court to overrule Employment Division versus Smith, a case that you've probably heard about, and we've talked about it on these podcasts many times in the past, in which the Supreme Court ruled uh, 30 years ago that uh, a neutral law, a law that on its face is neutral with respect to religion uh, and doesn't on its face discriminate based on religion but has some effect on religious practice, is not subject to strict scrutiny as long as it's 
It's a neutral law of general applicability. And they want that overruled. And when that decision came out, it was written by Justice Scalia. The court was sharply divided. Actually, so the liberals on the court were dissenters in that case <laughs> because the traditional rule had been strict scrutiny for any government action that uh, poses a substantial burden on someone's free exercise of religion. Did the Supreme Court change that? I wouldn't be surprised if it's because the conservatives on the court who voted for that with Justice Scalia's opinion said, okay, these are two Native Americans who were using peyote and got fired for, for failing a drug test. This isn't our religion. This isn't Christianity. This isn't we Catholics on the Supreme Court. You know, This is a religion that we don't really have much sympathy for because they're using hallucinogenic drugs that are on the forbidden list from the federal government, etc. And so we see no reason why the state of Oregon shouldn't deny them unemployment benefits when they were fired for cause for flunking a drug test. After all, they were drug counselors, and they were using a drug. You know, so I that's a weird case on its own. But Congress immediately tried to overrule it by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and subsequently many states passed their own Religious Freedom Restoration Acts to try to restore the strict scrutiny test for government policies that impose a substantial burden on free exercise of religion. Uh, and their first attempt, the Supreme Court said, was unconstitutional because they were trying to just overrule the court. Uh, then they went back in Congress and they said, well, this just applies to federal government actions, that the federal government can pass a statute restricting itself from imposing a substantial burden on free exercise unless it would survive the strict scrutiny test. So that's like a quick and dirty story about what ADF is doing in this case and why this case fits into their grand strategy. The grand strategy is to get the court to overrule Employment Division versus Smith. Second best is to get the court to uh, accept this idea that people's freedom of speech is being abridged, regardless whether it's because of their religious beliefs or other beliefs, but their freedom of speech is being abridged if they're being required to provide goods and services for same-sex weddings, because people will read into that somehow. Implicit in that is they're saying that we believe that these are really weddings, and we're providing our wedding-related goods and services to these weddings, which we don't believe, based on our religion, are real weddings. But as the oral argument shows, it isn't restricted to religious beliefs. It, it could go to any belief, because they're treating this as a compelled speech case, even though in its, in its initiation by ADF and Laurie Smith, it's really a free exercise case. But for some reason, nobody knows, because the court never explains this, they were presented with a multi-question cert petition, and they granted cert only on the free speech question. So theoretically, they weren't supposed to be talking about religion yesterday, although it tended to creep in here and there. So, you know, I just wanted to add that as, as introduction. Thank you for providing that framework. There's a lot of threads there. We're going to be pulling out in more detail over the hour. Before we jump into some of the specifics of the discussion yesterday, I wanted to introduce some of the parties that were at the podium, just so it's clear when we're talking who was at the stand for each particular side. So we had Kristen Wagoner as the attorney appearing for 303 Creative LLC. We had Eric Olson, the Colorado Solicitor General, and Brian Fletcher, perhaps the fastest talker outside of New York City, the U.S. Deputy Solicitor General. You know, we should point out another thing about this case and why this case is unusual in many respects. Usually when we have a case at the Supreme Court that involves LGBT rights, we have someone representing our community in this argument. And we didn't. I mean, in Masterpiece, I think we had an intervention. We, we had someone from the ACLU arguing. But in this case, what we have is Alliance Defending Freedom. That's Kristen Wagoner. She's an attorney with them. We had the state of Colorado Solicitor General's office. And uh, Mr. Olson is an attorney in that office. And we had the U.S. Solicitor General's office. And you might even ask, why is the U.S. Solicitor General in there? Because the federal public accommodations law doesn't apply to these cases involving weddings. But on the other hand, the Biden administration, which is firmly opposed to discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, wanted to put its two cents in. And whenever there's a constitutional question before the court and the federal government has an interest, they ask the court for permission to argue. And so the court 
if they grant it, usually expands the amount of time allocated for the argument to accommodate the government's attorney. But we had nobody really representing our community. We had nobody from the LGBT litigation groups, from the ACLU, from Lambda, from uh, you know uh, National Center for Lesbian Rights. No one to present it from our perspective, which I think is a serious problem here. I mean, there are so many problems. First of all, the standing problem. This is a made-up case. This isn't an actual case of controversy. Secondly, no one was representing our community. Although I think some of the justices maybe were calling out the other justices on some of uh, the more outrageous statements coming from the right wing of the court, which we'll get to. But uh, I think before we plunge into the substance, it's, it's good when we're talking about who these people are, that no one was representing us. That's an excellent Except by proxy. I mean, the state of Colorado by proxy, maybe the Solicitor General by proxy, but no one was there officially representing our community through one of our public interest litigation groups, which frequently are allowed to argue in these cases as amicus. And notably, there was the absolute absence of any mention of bisexual people who are also impacted by these rulings as well. So that could be in part that we did not have an advocate specific to the community at oral arguments yesterday. Right. Or transgender people. Yep. Or non-binary people. I mean, where where are religious objections going to be coming from to same-sex marriages? And what is a same-sex marriage once you start talking about transgender people and non-binary people? How do you define a same-sex marriage? Thank you for providing the clarification on the religious issue versus the freedom of speech issue. We saw a lot of sloppy reporting yesterday, not just on social media, but some of the major news outlets that really set this up as LGBTQ plus people versus the religious rights. And that's really not the framework of this case. So now that we've kind of set the stage and introduced some of the parties, let's jump right in with what we're looking at here for the particular aspects of the quote unquote compelled speech. You know, I think one thing that comes to mind, and I think that this is really important to know, looking at this in the big context, I'm really glad Art opened with this and, and thinking about how you can compel speech. You know, if you look at some of the questions that seem to be coming from some of the justices, there did seem to be this attempt maybe to draw this this line that I don't know has been similarly drawn before between the idea of the public accommodations of, of an open space in the commercial world versus what it means when you're in the commercial world and being able to use one's voice to, I guess, the word, to, to create something. There was a lot of very unique discussion, I think, trying to maybe draw some line there. I don't think I've heard similar oral argument that was attempting to maybe find some sort of middle, I don't want to say middle ground, but, but way to divide that up. You know, one thing that I found fascinating, coming back to something that, that was said before, which I think is really, 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 really important is this question of standing. No one's talking about this. The question was the first question out of the gate by Justice Thomas, and then it just sort of disappeared. And I don't think that as, as legal practitioners and constitutional members of our society that we should just let that disappear. Standing is a really, really important thing in federal jurisdiction. We all know that, right? We've had major, major wins actually in the LGBTQ community based on questions of standing. I'm thinking of Perry versus Hollingsworth. I mean, there, there have been really important things that come up in that context. And I think what's unique here is you see that sort of disappear. And then the questions that you begin to see from members of the court are really, I think, attempting to, to look through what it would mean if you have this question of a compelled speech argument. And as was being said previously, the uniqueness that surrounds that is quite striking. You have, I would say, Justice Alito, you've got uh, Justice Gorsuch kind of looking at that when you read through the transcript. And then you've got other folks. Uh, I'm just thinking of what Justice Sotomayor was saying, where she was talking about, I'm looking at the record, I'm looking at these websites. These websites are very cookie cutter. These websites are just switching of names in some in some regards. How is that really compelling somebody to do anything? 
when it comes to thinking about speech. And then I think it's really important, and I definitely want to make sure that we spend time on this in the context of our conversation today, to note who didn't talk. The chief barely said anything. Justice Kavanaugh barely said anything. What he did say, it wasn't even very easy to follow. <laughs> I, and so I, I just want to note that because I think that says a lot about what these conversations have looked like internally, because if you take the two of them out of this, you really do have this very unique conversation happening between Gorsuch, Alito, and then what we saw from Jackson, what we saw from Justice Sotomayor, what we saw from Justice Kagan really digging into, back to the question at hand, how, we, how is this compelling speech? How, are, how does this look like a First Amendment free speech question versus this history of anti-discrimination statutes and how they've been applied in the public sphere? And I think it's really critical that we think of those things together when we're talking about this and note, again, it's as important to note who talks as who's not speaking when it comes to oral argument. It says a lot about what's going on probably in the bigger picture. And also it's it's important in terms of, and uh, we don't want to get too deep into tea leaf reading because the justices actually tried very hard not to tip their hands. Kagan even specifically referred to that case saying, not to, you know, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to vote basically, but we could lose this and I say we could lose this from the perspective of people who think that carving a big First Amendment uh, free speech exception out of anti-discrimination law would be a horrendous thing. We could lose this six to three. But there's always the possibility, and this has happened uh, with some frequency, where Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh don't necessarily go along with the other conservative justices. So we could end up with a plurality decision by Alito, perhaps or Thomas, but more likely Alito in this case, because he's the big free exercise man, uh, we could we could get a, a four votes and then we could get a concurrence by Roberts and Kavanaugh on narrower grounds. And then we get a dissent from uh, Sotomayor and Kagan and Jackson. And I should put in a word for our newest justice that Jackson was very active in the argument and that she was as she has proven to be this term so far, extremely, extremely articulate with uh, these uh, doctrinal arguments. She is just fantastic. She is the justice who speaks in the most correct, grammatically correct sentences and paragraphs and is the easiest to follow. Justice Kagan tends to sort of stutter around a little bit in getting her sentences out at times, but she's also pretty pretty good at this. And Justice Sotomayor is more deliberative in the way she speaks. You can follow her easily. But it was clear that all three of them were pushing very hard on the idea that this is a bogus case when you talk about it as a speech case. You put together a website, and, and the only website we had in evidence was a dummy website that Lori Smith worked up as an exhibit to the complaint in this case. And she said, this is the kind of website I would produce if I could. What was it, Lori and Luke or something like that? So, so she had a heterosexual couple with a website, and it was sort of a standard formulaic website where the first thing is to save the date, and then who are the parties, and uh, where is the ceremony, and what's the time, and uh, what you know, what can you do when you're in that town, and where's the hotel where we reserved a block of rooms, and where's the reception going to take place, and that kind of stuff. That's going to be in any website. And what is there in the website that's going to call on vast reserves of creative work by the website designer? Once she's designed one of these, isn't it a lot of fill-in-the-blank stuff? And, you know, where's the speech? And where on the website is the website designer saying anything about marriage, uh, same-sex marriage? I mean, they could insert something like, God bless this marriage, that typo came up. You know, so, so what the three uh, liberal justices were pushing on was, well, you know, maybe there is some communication going on here, but this doesn't sound like a freedom of speech case to us. This sounds like you're selling a service, designing a website, you're selling a good, and it's, it's sort of hard. The, the law of contracts has had a terrible time struggling with this. Uh, before I became emeritus, I was teaching contracts every fall. And one of the issues in contract law is how do we deal with software? How do we deal with stuff that only exists in electrons? 
you know, in the internet or, or online somewhere or on a on a hard disk, are those goods for purposes of law because contract law distinguishes between transactions and goods and services, completely different bodies of law. And the courts have now settled on the idea that this is goods. So if you're selling websites that have already been pre-designed, the template, and I think the word was used by Justice Kagan maybe, the template has been set, and it's really a lot of fill-in-the-blank stuff once you've devised your standard template for a wedding website. You don't start from scratch every time you do a wedding website if you do wedding websites. And in fact, uh, if you know people who have gotten married and you've you've been given a link to a wedding website, you go on there and you discover after a while if you go to enough weddings that they look very familiar. <laughs> they all have pretty much the same information, as Justice Kagan pointed out. So where's this great freedom of speech involved? And it isn't really about the speech at all. What it is about is complicity, a word that was not used. We checked the index. The transcript is put out with an index. They run through a computer, the entire transcript, and every noun is extracted and listed in the index with references. The word complicity doesn't appear anywhere, but that's what this is about. She's saying if she does a website for a same-sex marriage, she's complicit in that marriage. She's contributed to that marriage. She has therefore communicated in some way to the world, or at least to anyone who sees that website, that the website designer thinks this is a marriage. And so her attorney, uh, Ms. Wagner, says this is, this is speech. She's creating speech. She's communicating something by making this website for this couple. If she makes a website for a same-sex couple, she's communicating that she believes this is actually a wedding. And she doesn't believe that. Why doesn't she believe that? Because of her religion, which is why this is really a free exercise case. But they don't say that because the court granted cert only on the free speech. So they're trying to use the free speech to get at the free exercise and expand it. Uh, and the, the three liberal justices wouldn't go for that. But it sounds to me that the uh, conservative justices – and Roberts did do a little speaking and Kavanaugh did a little speaking – they're all nibbling around this thing. How do we accommodate your freedom of speech without tearing a big hole in anti-discrimination law that would open it up to people with religious objections to racial integration? And so we get Alito's ridiculous hypo about the black Santa Claus who doesn't want – or rather the white Santa Claus who doesn't want to have little black kids – posing on his knee dressed in Ku Klux Klan outfits, and then a joke about black kids running around in Ku Klux Klan outfits. It was not only in poor taste, it was racist, right out there. And there was some misogyny involved, too, in, in the way he was interacting with Justice Kagan about websites. And this is, uh, there, there was a very interesting uh, article about Alito a few months back in The New Yorker about how, what an angry man he is. He is angry that he's living in a world where his freedom to discriminate is being abridged based on his religious beliefs. He sees Catholic, devout Catholics, as being an oppressed group in our society. And I don't know if Lori Smith is Catholic or if she's evangelical. I saw her described as evangelical in one news report, but I never saw that before anywhere else. But uh, – the idea is that Christians are now being oppressed because our society has recognized the equality claims of LGBTQ people and required them to live in a world where they cannot discriminate against LGBTQ people if they want to run their business in a way that is consistent with their religious beliefs. And that's what ADF is all about in this, this litigation. They want, they want to make the world safe for religious believers to follow their religious beliefs, even if that clashes with the requirements of the law. So we heard yesterday kind of the insistence over and over again from Wagoner that these quote unquote plug and play websites where you're just putting in the specifics about where to RSVP, like you said, where the hotel is, where the link is for the gift registry is somehow an endorsement of the marriage and just changing the words from Lily and Luke to Lily and Mary is enough to qualify as compelled speech for support of marriage equality. Yeah. And we have to remember that compelled speech is a doctrine invented by the Supreme Court. So we take these uh, textualists and originalists 
and look back to the First Amendment, which was adopted as part of the Bill of Rights. And Justice Thomas has taken the position that the First Amendment is only a restriction on Congress, that the court a century ago should not have absorbed it through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and applied it to the states. It's only a restriction on Congress. And therefore, the First Amendment should be irrelevant in this case entirely if Thomas is consistent. But Thomas is not consistent, I'm sure. I can't see him doing a separate opinion in this case saying, oh, by the way, the First Amendment's not involved in this case because it only binds Congress. But that would be his uh, – that would be consistent with his view of how the Bill of Rights should be interpreted. It should be interpreted based on the understanding at the time it was ratified in 1791, which is why we're all allowed to carry muskets everywhere we go. So I want to take us back to the scenes of Sansa, mall hypotheticals. This comprised a large portion of the discussion yesterday, and this is open to either of our panelists today on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about the variations on that hypothetical that were discussed by the justices during oral argument? Well, I think what you see, and I think smartly so, is you see Justice Jackson pointing out something that I think did not come out maybe as as strongly as it, it should have, where you can tie all of these questions back to the same kind of things in some ways that were being discussed in Loving versus Virginia, where you had very specific religious-based arguments that were being used against allowing opposite race marriages. And you can see that while that thread changes over time, there are still core pieces of that that exist in the same arguments that we're seeing now. It's, it's, a, it's candidly a very unique and kind of specialized argument to try to shoehorn that in under the First Amendment, knowing that the Supreme Court has a history, at least in the last 50-ish years, of being rather unanimous often or close to unanimous often on free speech issues. Free speech has become quite absolute in some ways, in, in ways that, that I think is very unique jurisprudentially currently in the way that the court looks at these cases um, across various different ideologies. And so I, I, I have to find that to be an imaginative way of looking at constitutional theory because it, it is. But Justice Jackson, and, and as was said previously, who is turning out to be a consummate justice when it comes to sitting on the bench and making very pointed, very clear, very articulate, and uniquely historically based arguments about cases. I think that's really important to see what she's doing, is she is putting history front and center on a lot of different arguments where I think some others may want to pack history up and not talk about it the same way, but she's putting it out front and saying, we've got to think about how history ties into this. And she's using this, the, the look and the lens of, of race, no different than how Justice Sotomayor was using the lens of disability to say, what are we really talking about here when it comes to the broad-based approach that Colorado has put into statute legislatively in its anti-discrimination laws, which Colorado's legislature has every right to do, and then thinking about how that's going to look in the big context of things vis-a-vis -vis this unique First Amendment free speech, compelled speech argument versus this history of anti-discrimination that we can go back to and look at from a racial lens and from a disability lens and from an LGBTQ lens. And I think that that is what made Justice Jackson's comments so pointed. And that, I think, is what also, and I just want to tie what Justice Sotomayor did too, what, what, what you see here is you see members of the court attempting to put front and center and grapple with the fact that historically speaking, anti-discrimination laws have existed, whether in common law or in statute, in order to prevent exactly things like this, to make sure that if you are going to be in the sphere of commerce, if you are going to put yourself voluntarily, because nobody forces you to be in the sphere of commerce, put yourself voluntarily in the sphere of commerce, you must be open to all. And I think that's why I come back to something I said a little earlier about how you could see maybe some of the justices attempting to parse, well, it's different if you're a hotel, you must, that's different than this forced speech, this, this compelled speech. I like that even, even better. I like that word. 
that I think really gets at the crux of where maybe they're trying to, to put this. But I think very importantly, as was mentioned by, by Art just a moment ago, when it comes to cases like this, I'm never surprised when they come out in unique plur uh, plurality decisions, when they try to find ways around things. Um, I think Fulton is a good example of that. I don't think anybody expected Fulton to come out the way that Fulton did. And so I, I wanna emphasize for our listeners to go into this with the lens of realizing that there's a lot of options that can come out, especially when you look at the way in which various people were talking about various pieces of these really big picture ideas that they're attempting to shoehorn maybe into places that don't fit perfectly constitutionally. Yeah, and, and the other thing is the difficulty of defining when. I mean, if they decide that this is a compelled speech case, what would it apply to? Even if you just limit it to same-sex weddings, would it apply to the stationery store? Because we had that in Arizona, in Phoenix. We had a, a stationer that didn't want to make stationery for wedding invitations for same-sex couples. And the Arizona Supreme Court said, yeah, you have a First Amendment claim there. That's a free speech claim. What about the florist, Arlene, Arlene's Flowers, which we had uh, out on the West Coast? There, uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court just refused to take up the case. They kept sending it back, and the Washington Supreme Court just sending it back to them. But uh, ultimately, is someone speaking through flowers? Well, the, uh, the florist industry has encouraged us to think about whether we're speaking through flowers. But what are we saying? You know, is there a message? And I think ADF, if they were doing that case, and I, I'm not sure if they were in that case, ADF would say, oh, you are. When you're sending people flowers uh, that are specific, or you're, you're making a floral display for a wedding, you as the florist are saying, I believe this is a wedding. I am endorsing this as a wedding. I'm providing floral decorations to make it a festive occasion. And I don't believe in that. And so I shouldn't be required to do that. And then we have the cake cases. And I, I, I still remember uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts during the oral argument in Mastiff, he said something about, well, I never thought that wedding cakes were all that delicious. You know, Anyone who has to actually eat them, they stand out there for hours under, under hot lights. <laughs> You know, and the the icing starts to melt, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't get into all those details, but he said, I don't think anyone has said that they're a gourmet's delight, you know, but the, the point is that they have a symbolic meaning with respect to marriage. And so the uh, Jack Phillips in that case made a free speech argument in his case, not just a, a free exercise, but the Supreme Court totally ducked that. They didn't even address the free speech part of it in the, in the case. Uh and what about wedding venues? If uh, we, we had this case in New York State, we had a farm in upstate New York that hosts weddings, and they didn't want to host same-sex weddings. And the Division of Human Rights said, but you're discriminating. And they said, but we don't want to be complicit. You know, it violates our religion to hold a same-sex wedding on our farm. And, and they said, well, tough luck. You're renting the farm out to people. You're a public accommodation. And we don't see that there should be an exception there. And they were upheld, I believe, by the appellate division on that. So, uh, you know, where do you draw the line? And I think it, it, it seems likely that the conservative majority on the court, which is a free exercise maximalist majority, and, and as Chris pointed out correctly, uh, is a free speech maximalist majority, chances are they're going to rule in favor of uh, Lori Smith and 303 Creative in this case. But how are they going to do it? How broadly? And how are they going to draw the lines? Are they going to draw lines? Are they just going to say, we're deciding this case on its specific facts. We're not deciding anything else, which is what Justice Gorsuch did in the Bostock case, which has left a mess in the lower courts about what the Bostock case means. He says, we're not deciding anything about restrooms in this case or dress codes. Well, one of the three cases was a dress code case. The funeral director who wanted to dress in the women's as opposed to the men's outfit after her transition. That was a, a – and, and yet uh, Gorsuch says we're not deciding that issue. And so now lower courts are tinkering around with that, and we're getting some weird decisions, especially out of the Northern District of Texas, about what Bostock means. So you know, the way the court writes the case is, is very significant, and the little quotes that they drift in there – so for example, a masterpiece. You can take out of the masterpiece that the court said, well, it is perfectly normal and appropriate – to have anti-discrimination laws that may incidentally burden someone's religious beliefs. 
I mean, they they as much as said so by citing the Piggy Park case about the uh, restaurant down south that didn't want to allow uh, people of color to eat in the same dining room with white people. And they said, we we have religious objections to integration and mixing the races. Uh, and the court said, well, that's too bad. You're a restaurant. You serve the public. This may have an incidental impact on your religious beliefs, but that's too bad. This is a general law, general applicability. It's The law on space is neutral with respect to religion. And the state has a rational basis for it. And that's the test, rational basis. That's Employment Division versus Smith, but that's also Piggy Park, which is more analogous here. Now, let's say Piggy Park Restaurant doesn't want to host a same-sex wedding. What's going to happen <laughs> if they're still around after that debacle back in the 60s when they lost that case? So we saw a lot of collapse yesterday between who in the wedding industrial complex is an artist and who is an artist for hire. Right. Chris and I spoke about this on a prior podcast. I was a florist in undergrad and did a number of weddings and really considered myself an artist for hire at best, as opposed to an artist who was expressing in my particular viewpoint, either about the flowers that were chosen or speaking through flowers or endorsing the particular union at hand. So can we kind of talk through a little bit about how some of the categorizations went yesterday between the cake makers, the jewelry makers, what's the difference between a cake and a case versus a cake that's made custom, and why are caterers somehow not artists for hire as well? Well, I, I, I can see you were concerned about the caterers, given your past. <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea here, well, first of all, if text is involved, then perhaps it looks a little clearer that there's a speech issue, because the website is going to have text. But whose text is it? And this is where I think we got into a very interesting thing. Uh, Justice Kagan says, you know, you look at the website and this is our story. This is how we met. This is what we like to do together. And she said, you're not you're you're not telling your own story. If you're the website maker, you're telling their story. And then they come back and say, well, a reporter in a newspaper who writes an article about something isn't telling his or her story. He's telling, you know, the newsworthy story of what happened in the world. And that's someone else's story, really. But then newspapers come under a different provision of the First Amendment, right? Freedom of the press. And couldn't a newspaper fire a reporter who refused to report about a same-sex wedding because of the reporter's religious beliefs? Do you think any court would interfere with that editorial decision by a newspaper? You know, where 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 do we draw the line uh, when we're going with weddings? Like this, this case that was just decided by the uh, Division of Human Rights Administrative Judge in New York. Someone designed a particular outfit that someone wanted to buy for use in a same-sex wedding. And I don't know if they even made a First Amendment argument. They just said, we won't sell it to you because we don't believe in in, uh, in same-sex weddings. And the State Division of Human Rights said, well, that's too bad. You're selling goods. And you're you're selling goods that have many different uses, not just for weddings. And your decision to sell the goods should not depend on the use that the person buying them is going to put to it. Although that'll get us into trouble when we get into gun cases, right? (laughs) Should the seller of guns be liable if the guns are used to uh, kill people or rob them or whatever? So, you know, we have all these areas in the law that interrelate and overlap, and a decision in one area may end up being used in another area. And in this case, uh, Mrs. Wagner, who was speaking for ADF or for Lori Smith and 303 Creative, she kept saying, well, this is a speech case. This is about creating speech. Are you creating speech when you print a wedding invitation? Are you creating speech when you design a website? Are you creating speech when you inscribe something on a cake? Are you creating speech when you make a floral arrangement? Now, you're certainly not creating speech when you rent your premises for a same-sex wedding. You're just renting the premises. But if they're requiring you to also do stuff at the wedding, is that creating speech? Is the caterer creating speech? Well, certainly the wedding singer you hire is creating speech, or at least song, which is text also. You know, when words come in, do we suddenly end up in a freedom of speech thing? Can you compel a wedding singer to sing at a same-sex wedding? And I think what we're seeing is when you open that door 
and you start to categorize things, I think it becomes, and I think that's why you saw some of the justices trying to see if they could sort of tease that out, but it begins to become incredibly complicated. And, and I think rightly, as you've just mentioned, the question of if there's actual text or actual speech or actual expression, maybe there's something different there. But I think it's why you see folks coming back to Employment Division v. Smith and this general basis test of thinking about how anti-discrimination laws apply, generally speaking, and Piggy Park, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. And, and I think it, in many ways, it's it's very difficult once you open that door to start to determine where this would apply, where it wouldn't. Does it have to be delineated in the statute in some way that's not? I mean, how the uncertainty that that opens is what law does not like. Law does not like, and right. law does not find that uncertainty to be comforting. The law wants things to be certain so that conduct and people can 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 you know conduct themselves within the ask the ambit of law. And I think that's one of the reasons that this really is is particularly unique in a constitutional sense, because again, I think at the very end of the day, we are a majority rule, minority rights, constitutional democratic republic, and the march is towards protecting folks in the public sphere from being discriminated against when you've opened yourself out up in the sphere of commerce. That's the historical arc that we see traditionally over the last, over the history of anti-discrimination law. And if you start to, to hit pieces of that and start to pick pieces apart, similar to the problems that can arise in other areas of law that uncertainty can be created, it becomes very, very difficult for folks to know where they're fitting in the, in the uh, structure, where they're not. And the law doesn't like that, and just as a general thing. And I think drawing those distinctions and we could we could do it all day. Drawing those distinctions, even for us, is very difficult. Can you imagine when you just are trying to open up your florist shop, trying to figure out <laughs> how you draw that distinction? And and that's what makes these questions so unique to look at and to think through, particularly for you know our uh, for our community. And that's where I think the com- complicity issue comes in. I mean, you might say that. Designing a floral arrangement doesn't sound like uh, speech itself, but providing a floral arrangement for a wedding, does that communicate a message? Does that make the florist complicit in the same-sex wedding, especially if the florist has to come to set up the floral arrangements at the wedding venue? It goes back to whose message is it, right? right. Is the this argument was specifically made in the Arlene Flowers oh. case, that you know she would be complicit in the wedding. Now, they didn't make that argument here, but it was implicit. And I think maybe it was Justice Kagan, maybe it was Justice Sotomayor, who said, well, aren't you saying that by making the website, she is implicitly approving of the wedding or saying that she considers the wedding to be valid? And what they were saying uh, on on, uh, the 303 creative side of the argument, they were saying she doesn't believe this is a true wedding, a true marriage. She believes only an opposite-sex marriage is a true marriage, not a same-sex marriage. And therefore, she would be communicating to the world that she thinks this is a valid marriage, something that she does not believe is true. So their argument, which they thought was their clinching argument, is the state is requiring them to say something that's not true from their perspective based on their sincere belief. And you know they picked this language out of uh, Justice Kennedy's decisions. And he's, he said this in Lawrence, I think he, he said it in uh, Obergefell. He keeps saying, well, you know, people are saying that people of religion are going to be discriminated against or something, or called bigots or something like that. He said, oh, we have to respect their sincere and honest beliefs. And they're allowed to have those sincere and honest beliefs. And, you know, they can, they can continue to teach what they believe. And if they can continue to teach what they believe, argues the petitioner in this case, then that means they can't be compelled by the state to teach the opposite or to communicate the opposite. And this is an, ar- this is an argument for people who are really, really strong on freedom of speech. This is a continuing tension in anti-discrimination law. Can you uh, forbid someone 
to speak their truth if it means that you are going to be discriminated against. I mean, we had uh, there was a case uh, I think the Pittsburgh Press Company early in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Does it violate the ban on sex discrimination for a newspaper to print help wanted columns, male and female? Or do they have a First Amendment right under freedom of the press and freedom of speech to run that help wanted uh, part of the newspaper any way they want? You know, newspapers don't have those classifieds anymore. It's all online now. But this was the way that you advertise jobs. And employers would say, I want to put something in the help wanted female, the help wanted male. And the Supreme Court said, well, you can't do that anymore because it's illegal to discriminate based on sex and employment under Title VII. So we're abridging your speech because we have a competing interest that is compelling. And that's sort of like the way the Tenth Circuit dealt with this case. They said, we see the speech argument here. We get it. I think Gorsuch at some point said, yes, you've explained it to me. I get it. I get her speech argument. Well, yeah, but that's not the end of the analysis. That's the beginning of the analysis. Because then if it's speech, if it's pure speech, and is a direct impact on speech, then strict scrutiny applies, and the government has to have a compelling interest, and the government policy has to be narrowly tailored to advance that interest without imposing restrictions on speech any more than is necessary to accomplish that goal, which in this kind of case would be, well, you know, you can't discriminate because there's no narrower way to do it. In the Fulton case, the court said, well, we don't see the compelling interest here in a metropolitan area with 30 foster care agencies, almost all of which are very happy to deal with same-sex parents. Why do you have to force the Catholics to do it if they don't want to do it because of their religious beliefs? What's your compelling interest in compelling this particular party to violate their religious beliefs? Now, I could see a similar argument emerging in this case, perhaps, because you want a wedding website? Is Lori Smith the only person who can do a wedding website for you? I mean, the Tenth Circuit accepted the finding, and I think there was a stipulation uh, on this fact, that she is a creative genius or artist of some sort, that what she does is unique, and you can't get it anywhere else, to which I say bullshit. <laughs> Pardon my French on the, on the podcast. The point is, there are scores and scores of wedding website companies. You can go online. You can find a company. You can do a website. If she turns you down, you can get it done somewhere else. And I could see them saying, where is the compelling interest of the state of Colorado to require her to do same-sex marriages if she wants to do them when people can get it elsewhere? You can go online. You can do a Zoom search. You can come up probably with dozens, maybe even scores of companies that provide the uh, the software to do your own wedding website or can provide you with designers who will do it, who have no religious objections whatsoever. She could probably even maintain a list of people to whom she can make referrals. And that is uh, a solution that you sometimes see in these foster care cases. They say, well, the religious agency can refer you to a non-sectarian agency that would be happy to handle your same-sex foster care evaluation, et cetera, in place. So, in that case, if, if you have strict scrutiny, you may flunk strict scrutiny in applying it to the religious person. But I can see that sort of thing emerging in this case as a sort of compromise. Saying if it was something that was truly unique in that sense, then perhaps she has to do them. But if it's not, if it's something you can get alternatively, but that for us is a very bad result in terms of the dignitary harms of encountering discrimination when you are a consumer going out into the marketplace to do something, especially uh, a situation where you have a very big emotional investment. I mean, we read about the uh, the guy who went with his mother to Arlene's florist to uh, order the floral designs for his same-sex wedding, and he was just devastated when this woman, from whom he had bought floral arrangements for all kinds of her birthdays and things, and they had gone to Arlene's because her, the mother had gone to a wedding and thought that the floral arrangements were spectacular and said, we're going to go to this person. And she turned them down on religious grounds. And they were just devastated. The emotional devastation of being told, you are not as good. You are different. We don't have to serve you. People like you. And all of a sudden, we have, and this is what that uh, communication provision in the Colorado human rights law is about. It, it harkens back to the days when uh, you would go to a resort hotel 
and it would say no Jews or no blacks, no Jews, something like that. The Irish need not apply. I mean, there was discrimination on all kinds of grounds, ethnic grounds, religious grounds, racial grounds. And this is addressing that and saying, well, you can't put that sign up. Even though we're restricting speech, we've got a compelling reason for doing it. Because this is not a society where you can advertise that you discriminate on grounds that are forbidden by law. So we'll see what happens with that. I mean, that is the clearer speech thing. The uh, the thing about designing a website being speech, that's more of a sort of implied speech thing, seems to me, in terms of the objections that the web designer has here. She's objecting to people thinking that she is approving this. Thank you for bringing up the emotional dignity harms, regardless of which way the case ultimately comes out. I have to say, just the fatigue of five years later, here we are and sitting and listening for two and a half hours for certain judges that were clearly looking for a path to be able to license to discriminate here. It's just disheartening. It's exhausting. And, you know, whether you're an advocate working specifically in the LGBTQ rights movement or whether you're an LGBTQ plus attorney, law student, or person in the community. It's, it's takes that heavy emotional toll. And I think it's important to acknowledge that year after year after year hearing these cases, the harm that that causes on all members of the community, whether they're someone who's interested in getting married or not. Definitely. I know we're just about out of time. Any final words, any predictions, any um, last minute points that we didn't get a chance to cover? Christopher, were you at home yelling at the TV saying, hey, side our piece? Like any, any final thoughts before I let the two of you go? I, I will say this. I, I come back to a few points that I think have not been generally made, but we've made today that I do want people to take away. One, I do think it's important to recognize the standing question. I don't think that that should just be brushed aside, regardless of where that ends up with the court. That is from a just legal scholar side of the world and legal practitioner side of the world, something we should all be very conscious of. I also wanna go back to something else that was mentioned that I think is very important. There wasn't an LGBTQ advocate advocating yesterday. You don't have Paul Smith like you have in Lawrence v. Texas. You don't have Robbie Kaplan like you have in Windsor. You don't have Mary Bonato like you have in Obergefell. And, and in my, the book I wrote on the history of the marriage equality movement with Bill Eskridge, we spent a whole chapter talking about how important that was to the, the folks in the, the case and in the movement and how that even came to be in the Obergefell case. I think that that's something we shouldn't miss. Um, and I'm really glad that that point got brought up. And I also will, will, as a third and final point, mention that I come back to, once again, the fact that when it comes to thinking about anti-discrimination in the public sphere, we obviously have to think about our community, but we are allies with people with disabilities and people of color and everybody else who these laws have made a, a very serious and tangible impact on, on the trajectory of their family decisions and their ability to access public accommodations. And these laws have had a really, really important historical impact on if you put yourself out in the public sphere, I said once again, you make that decision, nobody forces anybody to put themselves out in the public sphere, then you have to be available and open to all. And I think that that is a very, very, very important point when you think about the common law and statutory history of what any discrimination law looks like. And I think that's where I think we should really be thinking about the practical impacts of things and cases like this for our community and for all similar communities who have benefited from these laws over the course of anti-discrimination jurisprudence. I agree with everything Chris said. <laughs> I hereby endorse that message. And just add that uh, Justice William Brennan famously said, you can do anything you want around here if you can count to five. And so if you can count five votes for a particular result based on reading the tea leaves of the oral argument, you know how the court's going to rule. Uh, and I'm saying in this case, it's difficult to do. We know we're likely to have four pretty strong votes in favor of 303 Creative. We know we're going to probably have pretty three, three pretty strong dissenting votes in favor of the Colorado Commission. We don't know where Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kavanaugh are going to land, and maybe even Justice Barrett. It's, it's not totally clear because Barrett did not want to overrule Employment Division versus Smith and Fulton. 
that's too complicated. The line drawing issues are too complicated. And I think she may think the line drawing issues are too complicated here too. So who knows? You know, we may pull this one out, although I would be very surprised if we did. <laughs> so brace yourself. And in terms of when an opinion comes out, when it's a divided court, it takes longer. When they have to, when they have concurring opinions and dissenting opinions and drafts going back and forth and people responding to things and adding new footnotes to respond to arguments and the other things, it takes longer. So the, the cases and our issues tend to come out in the spring, even when they're argued in the fall or in the winter. So don't look for an opinion very soon. And maybe the court will prove me wrong for once and issue an opinion next month, but I think it's unlikely. So we got a long wait here. Indeed, but we'll be there every step of the way. Thank you both so much for joining us today, especially on such short notice so we can keep our listeners informed about what happened in a timely manner with the court. And thank you listeners for being engaged with our podcast. As always, please like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.